0: Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor here with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across a distance, through time and space, I guess, uh, it's the one, the only, Ken Nalbon. Ken, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Rich.
0: I appreciate you making the temporal journey. What do you say we get started uh, with the show? We do a little segment I like to call News or Not." It's where we have a bunch of news items. And I need Ken's help to determine if they're really newsy or eh, just kind of something to throw out there. So let's get it started, Ken. Are you ready?
1: Yes, but if you need my my help, I feel a little bit sorry for you, but I'll do my best.
0: <laughs> All right, first up here, uh, the Wall Street Journal reports that Apple is in advanced talks to buy Intel's 5G modem business for a reported 1 billion dollars or thereabouts. This would include their patent portfolio and any staff in the business unit. There was already some rumors that when Intel announced a few months ago that they were kind of shutting down this business unit and weren't going to be pursuing it, that a lot of their staff had kind of defected over to Apple. And not defected, had been poached or there's a less derogatory term. We're now working for Apple. The report has <laughs> also said the source uh, has said that sources say Intel's smartphone business loses about $1 billion a year. So breaking even, I guess, this year. News or not here, Ken?
1: I think it's news. Um you know, Apple likes to control as much as it can in its supply chain and integration in their hardware and software, and this gives them another opportunity to do that. I can think of very few companies that could uh, buy Intel's modem business simply for their own use rather than to resell it uh, other than Apple. So, uh, you know, it it, it seems like it could be a good fit. And um, I'm surprised to hear that supposedly they lose a billion dollars a year in, in the iPhone business unit. Did I hear that correctly?
0: I guess uh, when you're looking at in terms of maybe long-term investment, uh, R&D, and just not maybe seeing that payoff. I mean, if Apple, Apple is a giant customer, but if they're your only customer, maybe that, I mean, clearly wasn't enough to sustain uh, Intel's business, especially in the light of the Qualcomm settlement. So very Mm -hmm. interesting there. Uh, Hey, there's a new Slack. Uh, They're usually the makers of semi-useful team messaging services and garbage desktop apps, but they released a new (laughs) app. For the desktop, while still built on Electron, which I have my issues with, uh, most of the app has been rewritten, resulting in 33% faster loads, simultaneous loading of multiple teams, which is a big deal for me, and 50% less memory usage, also a big deal. Slack has been working on this for two years, but Ken, the question is, news or not?
1: Now it's cool. It's not life-changing, but it's good to know that now, you know, if Google would do the same thing with Chrome, that (laughs) means I could get work done without a high-end workstation uh, because those are the two things, and now Slack's taking care of one of them.
0: Uh, And then like a Dropbox sync in the background maxes out your CPU for the, really the trifecta of ruining your computer. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ken, back in 2010, you remember 2010, uh, you may have had uh, your first uh, smartphone. It may have been terrible. Uh, But it was a long time ago. Plaintiffs brought a class action lawsuit against Google for collecting unencrypted Wi-Fi traffic using their Street View vehicles. It was basically a default portfolio on there that they would just connect to any open network and soak up all the traffic. It was kind of a big deal back then. It's been a while. A settlement has now been submitted as of July 18th that would see Google pay $13 million and commit to destroying any data they collected, something they've stated they were already going to do, but I guess it's now official in court. Uh, Only network owners as part of the class action lawsuit would receive an individual payout, meaning that the thousands or tens of thousands of people that were affected by this, the vast majority of them would not get uh, any uh, uh, financial compensation for that, and most of that would go to attorney's fees with anything remaining going to consumer privacy advocacy groups. Uh, The settlement requires approval of a judge in the case, so it might not actually go into effect. But this is significant because a 2013 U.S. Court of Appeals decision uh, had rejected Google's argument in the case that this was akin to just collecting FM radio or or just radio signals, something that were out in the open and for anyone to receive. And it said they could be liable under the U.S. Wiretapping uh, 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 Act, which would uh, see them incur a $10,000 fine per violation, so per router that they connected to, again, with tens of thousands of those, could add up to quite a bit. Google settling out a potential wiretapping case here, Ken, nine years in. News or not?
1: Not really. It's a very meager settlement. Um, I don't know what the U.S. Court of Appeals based their decision on. I'm kind of in agreement with Google. They were collecting unencrypted Wi-Fi traffic. It, you know, People are just blasting it out. I know that there's a lot of non-savvy consumers who do that that hopefully have changed since then, but it's not Google's fault that they're being careless. So. <laughs> yeah you know it, t- it's nine years time to put it in the past
0: yeah i w- I was surprised to see that crop up and it it just reminded me though that that was such a huge hot point of you know was Google violating privacy or you know uh, and and kind of that realization, yeah that hey um when you don't encrypt your wi-fi uh that's that's kind of like shouting it to the world there all right, cool story here, Ken, but the question is, is it news at the conference on innovative uh data systems research. Two researchers demonstrated a paper uh, that showed DNA storage for a SQL database. While write speeds were still painfully slow, looking at just a few kilobits per second, the researchers see this eventually being viable as an archive tier in a data place, theoretically replacing tape with even more density and durability. The researchers also demonstrated the ability that DNA storage can also support SQL operations to selectively access and process parts of the data, effectively using it as a parallel compute layer as well. Structured data on DNA, can news or not?
1: No. I mean, it's it's cool in theory. It's another one of those things that, oh, someday this may be a thing, but it's clearly not now. Uh, you know, with the, as you mentioned, the, the painfully slow speeds, it's probably likely very expensive as well. Who knows if they actually make this a viable product in the future, then it'll be news. It's not.
0: Yeah, this is, this is, this was a cool science project. It is interesting though. Microsoft did come out with kind of like an automated way to do uh, DNA uh, read and writes, AKA no human operator in the middle, which is kind of a big deal when you're Talking about computing. But yeah, this is still purely theoretical. Although, Mm -hmm. seems like we're seeing a trickle of advances uh, every couple of months. So maybe there's some uh, where there's some innovative fire where there's science smoke i don't know how the metaphor works next up on news or not and i think the final one we'll have here vmware announced the acquisition of bitfusion last week who makes uh they're the maker of an elastic and virtual os for hardware accelerators what that really means is vmware plans to integrate it into vsphere allowing them to virtualize hardware resources for ai workloads it's kind of uh, a bitfusion's whole bag there uh vmware getting into this market here ken news or not
1: Uh, At first, I thought it wasn't news because we hear about some kind of acquisition by VMware every other week, but uh, on closer inspection, I think it is, and I'll tell you why. Uh, We've seen a lot of acquisitions and activity from VMware trying to get away from being just the virtualization company, right? Or at least just the hypervisor company, so they've been talking a lot about their networking and storage uh, virtualization capabilities, as well as all the stuff they're doing in cloud and multi-cloud to enable new application development, blah, 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 (laughs) trying to get away from the... We're the virtualization company moniker, but all of a sudden, they they snatch up BitFusion, which is going to enable them to basically enhance a lot of the capabilities of vSphere, their virtualization platform, their hypervisor. So it looks like, yeah, you know, as much of a story as VMware is trying to tell around everything that they do that's not virtualization, they're still investing in their main core competency, and where they have the biggest lead over anybody in the market, which is their hypervisor. So, yeah. Uh, I think it's news for that reason.
0: Yeah, and right now I think their their main tech was focused on GPU, you know, kind of uh, doing mm-hmm. this kind of virtualization for GPU workloads. But you know, kind of pointing the way that the obvious uh, extension of this is you know further into FPGAs and that kind of stuff. And it, it's an interesting, I think, maybe hedge against uh, some of this uh, uh, composable infrastructure that seems to be in vogue that could be used for a lot of the same use cases, but isn't necessarily in VMware's wheelhouse. Uh, this definitely is. and makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, first up here, uh, first thing I want to discuss here, uh, there was uh, security researcher Sam Jadali detailed a new, uh, uh, you know, kind of security uh, through browser extensions, uh, security vulnerability through browser extensions that he's calling DataSpy. Affected uh, extensions collected URLs, web page titles, and sometimes embedded links of every page a browser visited. The histories were published on fee-based service called Nacho Analytics. Links often included tokens that would allow access and, if shared, give anyone with that link access. I mean, obviously. Nacho Analytics had collected pages that included surveillance videos, tax returns, medical records, and more. And we're looking at not just private individuals, but uh, in doing this research, Nacho Analytics basically hosted this and you could see the information that they had collected uh, and we saw that there was internal testing data from Tesla, internal product development uh, pages from Apple and other corporate secrets. So, you know, not, again, not just, you know, your medical imaging or your personal tax returns, but, uh, you know, uh, implications for a lot of enterprises as well. The privacy policies of the extension said that the data collected would happen and that it would be shared with third parties. Um, still feels extremely disingenuous. Nacho Analytics claims that uh, uh, data collection is opt-in and data is scrubbed of names, locations, and other sensitive data. However, looking at this database from the security researcher, it appears uh, they didn't do a good job. Nacho Analytics CEO Mike Roberts told Ars Technica that the company has stopped new signups until it gets more information on the issue of sensitive data still appearing uh, and also maybe working out a new business model. Mozilla and Google have removed all extensions supported uh, that Jadali reported uh, on in their stores. Two Firefox extensions still appear to be available from developer websites, but they're being remotely disabled uh, by the browser makers themselves. Uh, Basically, one of the things that really concerned me here, Ken, that I want to discuss with you is... You know, are the browser extension something that isn't necessarily talked about a lot when we're, we're hearing from companies at uh, things like Tech Field Day, where we're taking briefings with them for Gestalt IT? Is this an under-evaluated threat surface for the enterprise? And you know, what are the odds that this is the only like Nacho Analytics is the only company doing this? It should be noted that these extensions had millions of people that were using them, and one of them, I think, I had used at one point. It was Hover Zoom that like would blow up an image when you hovered. Oh on. yeah,
1: so, mm-hmm. I've you used know, it.
0: Very popular extensions. You know, troubling there, Ken.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, it is. And I want to make sure I understand this correctly, because that was a lot of stuff. So you yeah, said early on that it was a bug in extensions. So <laughs> well, I mean, I, you, when you look at the, you know, the terms of service for most of the extensions are probably telling you that they may share information with third parties is the bug that they were collecting more information than they were supposed to be allowed to, or is it really not a bug? And it was just, you know, if you pay attention, this data is always going to these third parties that you have no control over unless you disable the extension entirely. Anyway, that that's the part that's a bit confusing to me. Um, You know, but it is clear based on the story that whether or not they were supposed to be sending all this data that, hey, here's another vector for, you know, security and privacy concerns, maybe maybe less about security, because it's not as though these extensions are kind of a way into some enterprise IT environment, but they are a way to collect data, which is more about privacy, somewhat about security in the terms of data breach of customer data being a potential threat, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, it does make me question, though, that for things like this, where this is as much of you know, as a technical issue of installing this plugin or so, or, or getting around, you know, IT policies around, you know, mm-hmm. what extensions you're allowed to use, is it also then incumbent for companies to look at the terms of service that their employees are agreeing to when they're, you know, when they're on a work machine or, or a work-related machine, you know, because I'm sure a lot of these were, it wasn't like someone sitting, you know, in a cubicle or something like that. This was probably a work laptop or something like that that they were taking mm-hmm. home, using for personal, you know, uses, which, I mean, everyone does on a work laptop but at some point. Um, and not thinking that this would have any implications or, or be against any kind of IT practices, too. I mean, it, when does that become the responsibility of the company to look into?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I have heard of I, enterprise IT departments basically locking down a laptop and saying you can only install the extensions that we approve. Uh, of course, I don't think that enter- that the IT department themselves want to be the arbiter of what is, what is not allowed. They'd really like it if they could just, you know, pass it along to somebody in a compliance or legal department and say, hey, check this out, make sure it's okay from a data collection standpoint or whatever the terms are. We're okay with it technologically. You know, we just want to get approval from somebody that's not us being the cops. Because, I mean, who wants that, right? I mean, that's just more work for somebody, <laughs> which is kind of a pain, which is kind of why, you know, maybe... Many shops aren't doing this, but they probably should. I mean, you you need to know what's being what's happening on your devices, right? Uh, and so, it, it presents a conundrum. It just presents another thing that you, people have to worry about now when when it comes to controlling what's going on on their network, on the, in, on their laptops, and their devices, all that kind of stuff. Boy, I'm so glad I'm not a sysadmin anymore when I hear about <laughs> stuff like this.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really makes you think that it's a thankless task when you, can, when you can be up on everything and all of a sudden something you think, you know, I think it's especially disconcerting because these extensions come from something that looks like an app store. I mean, it, you know, it is the Chrome extension store or the Firefox extension store or whatever like that. And I think Maybe our experience with, with Apple's app store, which is very locked down and it seems less prone. They've, they've had certainly data leak issues. That, I'm not saying they're exempt from it, but they seem less prone to those kind of issues. And I think maybe that gets us into a false sense of security when dealing with mm-hmm. other app stores that aren't quite as stringent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've seen it time and time again. Pretty much nobody's as stringent as Apple's App Store, whether you're talking about apps on other phones or now browser extensions. It's one more thing to worry about, Uh, by the way, for all you sysadmins who are adding this to your list now. Happy sysadmin day, which is (laughs) Friday, July 26th. Just kind of pointing that out there. Nobody ever wished me a happy sysadmin day when I was uh, doing the job. So I want to tell everybody out there, happy sysadmin day. I'm thinking of you this Friday.
0: Well, it wasn't a happy day uh, for Equifax as the U.S. Federal Trade Commission announced a settlement with the company over the tw- their uh, their very reported 2017 data breach that exposed personal and payment information on 147 Americans, Canadians, and British nationals. Equifax agreed to pay at least $575 million as part of a penalty, submit to third-party assessments every two years, and invest $1 billion uh, to improve their overall security. The fine would reach up to $700 million with up to $420 million. The, the big variable is $425 million, uh, being allocated to compensate consumers and pay for credit protection services. So that amount could be a little variable. Uh, definitely going to be paying $175 million to 48 states uh, as part of various lawsuits that they have with them to settle those cases. And $100 million to the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because I guess they just like money. Uh, the settlement makes the largest that makes this the largest fine levied by the FTC in this kind of case and represents up to twenty percent of Equifax's twenty eighteen revenue. So a not insignificant amount for Equifax. I am mm-hmm. certainly not saying they don't deserve that or more. But the the interesting thing here is the FTC issuing bigger fines than would theoretically be allowable under GDPR here, Ken. Uh surprised to see that in the US?
1: Uh, you know, I don't know if I am surprised. Uh, you know, but generally speaking. I sometimes feel consumer protections are not as strong here in the US as they are in the EU now, thanks to GDPR. Mm -hmm. And when I first saw this story, I thought 700 million does not seem very big compared to the amount of damage Equifax did in this breach. And then I saw that number and realized, oh, wow, I didn't realize GDPR would be so limiting to the fine that could have been levied against them if they were subject to that, to a law like that. Uh, But, you know, this was a big deal. And who was it that fined Facebook uh, very recently for their breach? Their uh, I guess it wasn't the FTC. But, but it was, that was like a. See,
0: it was. I think when they said this was a record fine, uh, I think because Facebook's case was a, like a further violation of a previous investigation, they they qualified it differently in the amount that they qualified the record. So I think that's the discrepancy there.
1: Because that was a, a five billion dollar fine, and given that, I I think that this breach is a way bigger deal, and it's certainly justified, warranted a higher fine i mean because you know these companies have information that's gathered essentially without the consent of consumers and without any control over that data, except, you know, if you choose to opt out of using credit in your life, that's pretty much your only way out of that. And how are you going to do that? I mean, you need it to have a place to live, whether it's a house or an apartment, you need it to get a cell phone, you need it to do just about everything. So you have no choice. And then something like this happens totally out of your control, nothing you could do to prevent it. Yeah, uh, I kind of would have expected to see a higher fine or maybe I'm not expected. I would have thought that a higher fine would have been justifiable.
0: Yeah, or, yeah, some kind of control. Because, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing with any of these big tech companies is, you know, I mean, you can always say there's theoretically competition, right? You, like, you could use another social network. You're not strictly tied into using Facebook. And you can, you know, kind of vote with your feet and leave the platform if, if what they're doing is so odious to you or something like that. Obviously, there are ways that Facebook has you locked in in so many different ways. They're wonderful like that. Uh, but, when you're dealing with a credit agency yeah you really have no recourse as a consumer and maybe that's why as a percentage this fine is so relatively high is kind of maybe a recognition of the fact that they don't exist but it is kind of a it's it's not a too big to fail but from a business to business perspective the business that's buying credit information from equifax really doesn't care because as long as that information is accurate, they really don't care that there was this big data breach. Yeah, it maybe looks bad to do business with Equifax three months after the breach, but two years later, I mean, who cares, right? As long as the mm-hmm. information's good and you can make business decisions based off that.
1: And to be clear, I don't think that Equifax is too big to fail because they're not the only credit bureau uh, out there. And even if uh, somebody decided that, well, we need a a big three, I bet somebody else would pop up in Equifax's place if, you know, the fine would is so big that they could not remain in business
0: anymore. I'm I'm sure Facebook has enough information that they could gladly step into those shoes if ever.
1: There you go. New Facebook BU coming up.
0: Uh, Some interesting news here from Microsoft. They announced that they will invest $1 billion in OpenAI to help develop artificial general intelligence that can be applied to widely distributed economic benefits. As part of the investment, the two companies will develop new AI technologies for Azure. So pretty much table stakes with any kind of investment there. OpenAI will train and run AI models on Azure. Cool, I guess. The big thing here though, that I thought was really interesting is that OpenAI will license technology to Microsoft to commercialize and sell to partners. Feels really significant to me. Microsoft uh, has been making a lot of investments in AI recently, and this is just the most recent. But how big is it that they will be the commercial front end for a prominent AI research company? If anyone's not familiar, OpenAI is one of the dozens upon dozens of uh, startups that Elon Musk has founded and is CEO or something like that of, uh, and, and definitely has a lot of credibility as a prominent AI researcher. So, you know, Ken, big deal for Microsoft to get this kind of deal? <laughs>
1: I think it's a bigger deal that it's going to enable you know AI workloads to run to, for them to have more AI enabled services in Azure. Frankly, because that's that's where they needed to catch up, right? Lots of that going on with um, Google. Uh, I think they had a lead. It's one of the few places that Google had a lead in their cloud over Azure. It was their AI services, and that goes for AWS as well. This is the kind of thing where businesses want to invest in AI as a service and not develop it and have to manage it on their own. They just want to consume it so that they can put it to use for new applications. That's exactly what the cloud is for. That's exactly why Azure needs a compelling AI offering to, to bring in those customers.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's a place where I think a lot of people see Google as having a relative lead, even though they're, you know, a distant third kind of in the public cloud space. They've certainly made a lot of hay uh, in that specific regard. So obviously Microsoft mm-hmm. not wanting to fall behind there. All right, Ken, yeah. Another interesting security story here. Security researchers at DevCorp disclosed to TechCrunch, ahead of a Black Hat presentation that they'll be doing, flaws in popular corporate VPN providers that could be easily exploitable remotely, easily in quotes there. They, uh, they cited uh, flaws in SSL VPNs from Palo Alto Networks, Pulse Secure, and Fortinet, which allowed them to comp- uh, compromise VPN servers without any authentication credentials. Uh, they, the details of the Palo Alto worm were the only ones that got into a lot of detail in this initial disclosure. I'm assuming we'll hear more at Black Hat, but that uh, exploit effectively allowed them to use any simple format string flaw, essentially just putting in nonsense characters, to crash the VPN server and allow for further exploitation from there. So really, to get that started, uh, just required a bunch of gobbledygook, I guess. All three named vendors have rolled out updates after being contacted by the researchers, so they was responsibly disclosed, although the report notes that Palo Alto networks didn't immediately publish. Lily disclosed that they had patched that. They just kind of rolled out a silent update uh, at first. The flaw comes after Homeland Security issued a warning in April of major security vulnerabilities in corporate VPNs. And I think this is, uh, you know, might have spurred this initial research uh, from DevCorp. Does any kind of remote access here, Ken, just inherently make your organization less secure? And, you know, thinking about that, what are the implications as we're seeing uh, organizations, you know, further spread out uh, using something like uh, (laughs) SD-WAN Uh, to further distribute corporate networks, what are the implications there? I realize those are you know tangentially related uh, VPNs to SD WAN, but you know is is that inherently less secure by nature?
1: Well, I think the one common linkage between those two things you talked about, like corporate VPNs and SD-WAN, is that they make things more convenient, either for the end users or the enterprise IT department. And anytime you take on an initiative that is probably going to make things more convenient, you're probably opening yourself up to greater risk. Uh, and, and that's the case here. Um, but it doesn't feel like any different than any other previous you know, exploit that has been fixed uh, before You know, the research was ever announced that I've ever heard before. These things happen. Uh, what's really more important is for you know IT practitioners to be mindful and to be vigilant about patching, right? Because you're gonna waste your time worrying about zero days that may or may not affect you. Uh, but you can do a lot to prevent yourself from being exposed to these kinds of risks if you are just you know conscientious about staying up to date with security updates. Really, that's the basics. And so many people surprisingly don't pay attention to that. They get worried about the less important things.
0: Well, and that's certainly a, a lesson that uh, Equifax uh, could have learned and maybe saved themselves a little bit of scratch. Uh,
1: Precisely, and, a good uh, callback.
0: And, well, and and speaking of that, you know we we were kind of uh, security heavy uh, on this one. Uh, there was actually a, a data breach study by IBM. They do this annually. It's the cost of data breach report, and they found that the average data breach cost increased twelve percent over last year, looking at five year tail, and now averages three point nine two million dollars. Uh, for that, that's for all businesses overall. For smaller businesses, less than 500 employees, that average now exceeds 2.5 million dollars. Uh, look, digging into the numbers a little bit more, the report found that the breaches uh, do have a long tail, with 67% of expenses realized during the first 12 months after the breach, 22% accrued over the second year, and 11%. Uh, percent For the next two years after that. So still significant amounts of money needing to be spent uh, long term over these data breaches. Uh, This could be anything from third party uh, analytics or um, forensic examinations, uh, legal costs, rapid investments to shore up security, as well as government penalties, which I thought is probably going to be more prominent going forward. Most troublingly, the report I think found that average data breach. The average data breach takes 206 days to discover and a further 73 days to completely contain. With 51 percent of breaches caused by malicious actors, 24 percent by human error, and 25 percent due to technical malfunction. Uh, surprised that the human error accounts for so little here, Ken. And, and you know, uh, what do these numbers? Do these numbers tell us anything that we haven't really seen uh, in the news so far?
1: I, I'm kind of confused. Um... Interested to hear how they classify human error, because if they consider, you know, somebody falling for a phishing email or clicking a link they shouldn't somewhere or having weak passwords and that's considered malicious actors rather than user error, then I guess that's how I could see the number swaying in in that direction, because it, it feels like most of the times we hear about security breaches. It's just because somebody wasn't paying attention. They weren't properly educated, maybe some employee, or when I mean, we bring it back to the IT department themselves, not being vigilant about patching or something along those lines. Is that not uh human error? I, you know, it interesting to see how it's defined. I will note that when I first saw the the number uh for the story, I misread it as 3.92 billion. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then I saw 3.92 million and I'm like, that seems low. And then I realized it's an average for, you know, businesses of just about every size, you know, 500 employees up. And I'm like, okay, so that probably scales depending on the size of the organization and the amount of data that's at risk and things like that. So, you know, um, seeing stuff like this is a bit encouraging because maybe it's helpful in um, adjusting attitudes of decision makers who are maybe not completely technically inclined. They certainly understand money.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that 206 days though really was, you know, to take that, to find a data breach. I understand if it's a I guess if it's a, a technical error, that theoretically could be going on as, as you know, so, you know a, a misconfigured S3 bucket or something like that, right, would be a mm-hmm. you know, classic example of that where you have a, a database just kind of sitting out there that anyone can get to. And yes, there are there is tooling to, you know, scan, you know, uh, what you have out there to, to make sure that's not accessible or something like that. That I could see sitting out there for a long time and you might not know about it. But, you know, if it's a phishing attack or something like that, hopefully you're finding that a little bit faster. Uh, of course, though, with hopefully with, with over... And, and I think phishing did fall under human error, uh, if I remember what okay. I read in the report. Um, so, you know, with malicious actors, having that kind of lead time uh, really could be devastating, especially if, if you're talking about um, any kind of consumer information getting out there. Now, some of this may be, you know, all data breaches are not uh, created equal, right? I mean, if you get mm-hmm. a bunch of log files or, um, you know... Uh, I I don't know, like what the temperature is in your your data center or something like that. You know, that data is much less valuable than Social Security numbers, credit cards, and that kind of stuff that make the news all the time. So, you know, some other context is, yes, a data breach may have been out there for several hundred days. How, uh, you know, what data was out there and why wasn't it being monitored? That's another question.
1: That is another question, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's still important. Yeah, okay. But
0: still vaguely depressing. And that's how we like to end the Gestalt <laughs> IT rundown. Remember, if you want to catch up on the IT News of the Week, you can find us here every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we stream it live on Facebook. It's on YouTube soon after that. And you can find it, of course, on gestaltit.com. You can also find Ken Nalbone there. But Ken, is there any other place that they can find your lovely writings, uh, ramblings, and or uh, beautiful profile picture?
1: You can see my beautiful profile picture and random thoughts about tech and other non-tech-related things on Twitter all the time. I'm at Ken Nalbone. Uh, just check that out after you read all my writing at gestaltit.com. Uh, check me out every once in a while on techfieldday.com as well. I'll be seeing folks uh, up, coming up in VMworld in a little over a month.
0: Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology and on as well. That just about does it for the GestaltIT IT rundown for this week. Uh, so I will invite you, dear listener, to remember, until next time we meet, have a super sparkly day.